0: The readings from Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat. Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, get, rid- get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Please keep your Bibles open.
1: Right, well, I just want to ask as we come into the Bible this evening, is the Bible an old-fashioned book? Isn't that what lots of people say? After all, reading that bit of the Bible we've just read in Luke 17, we don't use millstones today, we don't have slaves or that kind of servant. All that's in the past. So why pick up this very old book in a council estate in East London, which is one of the most uh, 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 forward, advanced cities in the world, and say, this is what we'll give some time to in our meeting, in our service. Well, Luke wrote those words, yes, a long time ago. And he seemingly puts loads of different things that seem to be unconnected together in Luke chapter 17. If you just have a look at those headings, uh, you'll see what I mean. He talks about, uh, in that first bit, about sin in the first story about uh, faith, like a mustard seed, about duty, like a slave. And then later on he talks about what Jesus does with ten lepers. We'll look at that next week. And then right at the end you get this overall uh, heading that Jesus talks about, the coming kingdom of God. So if you just take those headings, which weren't there when Luke wrote them, but what we've got in our Bibles as a bit of a summary... It seems like it's all higgledy-piggledy and unrelated. But all of that actually comes under the umbrella of that coming kingdom, or if you want to make it even simpler to say, all of that comes under the umbrella of what Jesus is telling us about the future. And that fits in with what we've been studying the last two weeks, if you were here. We were looking at Luke chapter 16, because the way we do the Bible is go through it bit by bit, and when we went through Luke 16, remember how we spoke about a man who was very wise in that he was getting eternal friends, and then last week we spoke about uh, a rich man uh, and the conversation he has after he dies. So we are talking about the future and how what God has written isn't going to be changed one tiny bit because he wants us to be able to check everything he says about the future happens exactly as stated. So we're not jumping from one thing to another, it seems a bit like that, but that's the connection Uh, The Bible is not a book that's locked into the past, really old-fashioned. The Bible is like a compass that's always pointing us towards the future. If you've got that right, we'll understand how the little bits of it fit in. And the way it fits in we're going to be looking at tonight, just under three little headings, if you like. The first thing we're going to say is, don't cause offence. Then the second thing we're going to say is, don't take offense. And the last thing we're going to talk about is how we live in trust and work for our master. So the first thing then is don't give offense. Verses 1 and 2 seems to be uh, clear really in lots of ways. It says rather drown than cause somebody to stumble. But what is he on about? Well, the story so far, if you were here last week and you looked at Luke 16, is that the religious leaders of Jesus' day loved money. If you look at chapter 16, verse 14, you will see that the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering of Jesus. Now, that's not just an old-fashioned thing that religious leaders love money, it's a Present day thing as well. A friend of mine from Africa said that if you want to make money in Africa, you would go for one of two professions. You either become a politician or you become a pastor. Both ways are seen to be the route to get rich. Now, the question is why is that a problem that will make other people stumble? Well, it's when that happens that church leaders lead people effectively to live for this life than the future. That is the stumbling block that they are producing as they love their money in the time of Jesus as well. But how will drowning help? Well, in all these different stories, Jesus is using graphic language, not literal language. He's not actually saying, let's do this. He's using graphic language to show that there's been a major change of mind because if a person is now willing to drown then no longer are they trying to cling to this life with all its possessions. If someone's willing to go that far essentially they've given up on this life. They don't think that this life is that important anymore. So that sense shows a major change of mind but more to the point. It reveals that persons really understood that what they've done is mega serious as far as God is concerned. When the biggest thing that God has done is to create a different future for his people, then to imply that what they should do is to live for the present is to go about uh, the opposite Way to the direction that God is taking us in. So, for example, if you just uh, think back the story of Moses when (coughs) God's people were in Egypt, a lot of people know that story even if they haven't been to church. Now, God met Moses and he said, Look, I'm going to take you guys out of Egypt into a whole new country. Can you imagine the situation that Moses would be in if he then at that point went back to his people and said, guys, I've got this plan to become rich here and now. I've got a great idea how to be prosperous while we live in Egypt. Can you just imagine how it would be with Moses and God if he gave that kind of lead to his people when God had something completely different in store? But we certainly know what happened to Pharaoh when Pharaoh tried to get God's people to stop thinking about the future in another place and tried to keep them there. We know what happened to Pharaoh. But can you just imagine what would happen to God's leaders if they try and anchor people in this life when God has a whole new future in store for them. So death by drowning is better than facing up to God's anger which is worse if you've caused his people to stumble. It shows that we've woken up to the seriousness of what is going on. Now the question of course is well, how, do you make, how do leaders make God's people stumble? Well, what's the scandal that can cause that to happen? I think a lot of people think that uh, sex could do it, so immoral leadership uh, can cause God's people to stumble. That's one contender. But in the context of this passage, it's not sex. It's actually money. Because that's what the leaders of Jesus' day, in this Immediate context in Luke 16 and Luke 17. That's the context. Money-loving leaders. Now, that is actually quite a stumbling block, isn't it? If you think about it, if the vicar runs off with the organist, well, that's a shocking thing, but let's face it, not everybody in the church is about to go and do the same thing. Most congregations would realize that that is something that is so off the wall that they shouldn't be doing it. But when you get leaders preaching prosperity gospels, then the effect it has on others, it makes everybody think that they should be driving around in a murk. Now, that's not to say that Mercedes are bad cars and that they're only driven by bad people. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying if you use a Mercedes as a badge of God's blessing you've been misled. And the leaders who've misled you it would be better for a millstone to be put around their neck and for them to uh, uh, be uh, in the sea. So don't give offence and especially in this area. We aren't to live in the present. We are to live with the future in our minds. Secondly, don't take offense. So you can see that uh, verses 3 and 4 are all about forgiving people. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. If they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times a day, seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now look, let me say that this is not talking about irritating personal behavior. Okay? Okay? This is not the person who cuts you up when you're driving along the road, waves sorry, and then does exactly the same thing for the next seven miles uh, that uh, you travel down the same road together. This isn't about personal annoyance and having to forgive people when they just stamp on your toe one too many times. Now you rebuke someone when they sin against you because the root problem is they've got the future wrong so yes selfishness is annoying but what's really serious and you notice here, is talking about your brother or sister so you're talking about another Christian in other words when another Christian acts in a way that essentially denies the future Acts in a way that they they do things that they would never do in the future. At that point, the rebuking them is not, look, let's be a policeman and go and make sure that people are behaving properly. Now, what we're wanting to do is to rebuke them for their sake when they're acting in a way that is the opposite of heaven. We'd want to go to them and say, my brother or my sister, you won't be doing this in heaven why do you want to do it now? So rebuking people like that creates a culture in a church where people are serious about living for the future and noticing when we're living for the present and seeing that as a cancer that needs to be surgically removed. So that whenever it appears... We want to be talking to each other. Look, that isn't really what heaven's going to be like, is it? Why don't we do it differently? That's the kind of rebuke and the correction I think that this passage has got in mind. And then they realize that's the reason uh, why uh, they've got it wrong and they might ask you to forgive them. Now, the difficulty is, it's very hard for all of us to keep heaven in focus. So, once again, you find that they are selfish, possibly in exactly the same way, and once again, we've got to remind them, brother, include sisters, you will hate being like this in heaven. Why don't you stop? So, to help them to refocus on heaven, we forgive them. Because essentially, at that moment in time, we are putting heaven in front of them in our own response to what they've done. That's why, as we drew out earlier in the service, it's seven times the perfect number, putting in front of them perfect forgiveness so that um, uh, we will mirror heaven in our response to their hell. If we were to be angry with them instead, to tell them off, uh, that's to mirror hell with hell. And it's really inconsistent to ask people to steer away from hellish behavior if we're reacting in a hellish way ourselves. But if we're acting heaven, then we're putting in front of them a whole new way of life that we'd want them to to be aiming at themselves. Don't take offense. Put heaven in front of them instead. Lastly, trusting God to serve him. That's in verses 5 to 10. And I guess uh, behind verse 5 could be the apostles wondering if it's ever going to be possible for us to live in this way with this future in our minds. And so they say, Jesus, increase our faith. And the answer Jesus gives is that uh, the genuine believers with the very tiniest amount of of trust in God can see the impossible happen. So replanting a a marbury tree with a mustard seed of faith the tiniest now look replanting a mustard seed a marbury tree in the sea is not a very significant thing Jesus is not talking about doing something literally remember in this part of the Bible we're talking about graphic descriptions just like the millstone round the neck he's not saying go and do it he's just saying look this is a graphic way of describing how someone with the tiniest bit of trust in God will see God do the impossible in their lives. And he, even if you are the tiniest, babyest Christian in this room, can change the focus of our lives from living in the present to living for the future. But that is not to say that... Um, uh, when we think about heaven in this kind of way, that we're going to be pretty useless. I don't know whether you've heard this little uh, saying that's going around, oh, such and such a person, they're so heavenly-minded, they are of no earthly use. Now, I guess there are people who are slightly space cadets in that kind of way, but you notice that uh, living for heaven has big implications for the present, and for working hard in the present. That's where the slave story comes in, or the servant story in our translation. I've never noticed it before, actually, that this hard-working servant is right in the middle of this section about the future. Puts to bed this idea that if you're heavenly-minded, you become unproductive and useless. No, this slave goes from one job to another. First, in verse 7, it's hard slog outside and then there's more work in the kitchen after that and then, at the end of all of that, he's got to dress up and serve his master and uh, his job's not done. Now, again, that is not to teach us that God doesn't do tea breaks and he's against all rules about rest. Remember, God is using graphic language, not literal language here. But it makes the point that when we understand the future that the Master gives us, then we consider it a huge privilege for us to be this kind of servant for him. That's why it ends by saying we are unworthy. When you consider yourself unworthy, it is usually because you consider the privilege you've been given is far too great. And therefore, you say, I'm an unworthy servant. Uh, I'm only doing my, my duty. And therefore, it is just such a privilege, isn't it? Christians see hard work for God, not as a bind, oh, and there's something else now that he wants me to do, we see it as an unending privilege from the start of the day to the end of the day to be serving this master. Because let me tell you, if we weren't serving this master, we'd be serving other masters that would be far more restrictive and enslaving than this one. Remember, the big picture of this master we're talking about is that he is in this part of, the Luke's, of Luke's Gospel heading for a cross to serve his servants. What a privilege to serve a master like that. Now, what's the take-home for us? Maybe I should press the button one more time to finish off that point and to say that we see serving as a great privilege. Okay, let's put the pictures away and work out what the take-home is for us tonight. Well, look, if you're someone who's near I wonder if you've noticed how Christians are not people who are dinosaurs stuck in the past, but those who follow the Lord Jesus are single-mindedly living for the future. And can you see how attractive this future will be if you're in a world where relationships are that much more heavenly with the forgiveness that there is, Where life has a purpose, (coughs) serving a heavenly master, rather than aimless, or where the alternative is slavery to something worse. Doesn't a life like that appeal? Now, if you'd like to be stepping into a life like that, it'd be great for us to talk afterwards. It'd be wonderful to baptize you into this new life, if you wanted to become a Christian yourself. (coughs) Uh, What happens if you're used to church? Uh, Can you see the link between the future and working hard in this passage? I think that's worth noticing because we can, if we're churchy, be good sermon listeners, can't we? Very easy to do most of our Christianity sitting in a chair in a church. And we can agree with what be, what's being said here, but we can find our way out of it as well. We can make exceptions. We can say, look, I can understand that there are some gifted people who work very hard, but me, I can't do all that because, I don't know, I've got mental health issues or whatever it is. <coughs> this doesn't apply to me. Can you see how this passage gives us freedom? from thinking of ourselves and defining ourselves by our weaknesses. I'm not a person who's, 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 who's handicapped by mental illness or by OCD or by anything else. That is not my prime identity. My prime identity, my big calling in life is to be a servant of Jesus. Lose the other things that we might have carried with us from the past And stick with this new identity. We are slaves of Jesus. In whatever situation we are in, wherever we may be, finding ourselves. This is our new identity. To see ourselves as servants of his and to live for him. Flat out. From morning until evening. That is a great thing to do. But what if you are a believer who genuinely wants to live this new life? And I guess, really, passages like this can and should convict us that we so often don't. So when I look at this passage, I think I need to admit that I mislead mislead people by living for the present too much. I get stressed and angry and don't show people forgiveness in my relationships. I think I'm stuck constantly bothered about this life without a hope of ever being able to live with my eyes raised to the future. And I want to admit that I'm someone who fails in the light of what we've heard today. But I equally want to understand the forgiveness of heaven for me, the forgiveness of God, and to step out from here with the assurance that even if I might be the weakest Christian in the world with just a mustard seed of faith, I can be changed into someone (coughs) who lives with this new this new longing to show out heaven in the way that I live today and so I want to go home tonight wanting to serve my heavenly master morning till night and to see it as the greatest privilege that God gives to unworthy people because only unworthy people will see that as a great privilege to live with every day of the week well let's pray that God will help us to think like that and then we'll take questions Heavenly Father we thank you for the new future that you set before us we need to keep hearing that in the next six days where we live in a world that is preoccupied by the present please change us even with our little mustard seed worth of faith And set us free to think of ourselves as servants of the Lord Jesus. To see that identity above any other. And to see that it is privileged work to serve Jesus in this coming week. And we pray that for the glory of his name. Amen. Amen.